Hello, and welcome to Warhammer 40K's Grim History from the Beyond. I am Zekthon. And I'm Mewtzer. And we are the chroniclers of all that was, and all that will be in the 41st millennium. We have seen the rise and fall of many empires, and this week we will be looking at the most noble of the Space Marine chapters, the Salamanders. Right you are, Zekthon. The Salamanders, a beacon of hope in such a dark universe, the protectors of mankind, and quite honestly, the good guys in a galaxy of horror and corruption. They are benevolent guardians of humanity where every child is precious to them and no sacrifice is too great to save a single human's life. I couldn't say it better myself, Yuxin. Well, let's dig in, shall we? Now, last week, if I recall right, we were going to discuss the Salamander's homeworld, Nocturne, right? That's right, Yuxin. Nocturne. Not the greatest place for a vacation. I think you heard it best from a smithy from the planet, and I quote, <clears throat> Have you ever been to our benighted world? Its name literally means night, but we do not dwell in darkness. Hell comes to our cities and our peoples. It visits upon the earth such ravages as to make the sky black as sackcloth and the ground spew red molten death. It is not a hospitable world, this world, for monsters lurk in its dark depths. And death is but a slip away for the careless, the unwary, or simply the ill-fortuned. It is not a populous world, because much of it cannot be populated. The mountains are bleak, craggy places. Their summits wreathe with poisonous fumes. The deserts are many, and they are desolate, unforgiving plains of ash. Our few rivers are veins of acid and alkali, tainted by the sulfurous earth. We have no forest save for the petrified groves that lurk in the hot shadows of our tallest peaks. Our fauna takes to the air on leather wings, or hunts the dune with tusk and claw. It's serpentine, reptilian, chitinous, and saurian. But it is our home, this broken land, and we defend it with our blood and breath. Woe betide any who come here seeking to put it asunder. They will find it a terrible place, a very terrible place. Sounds scary. Indeed. Nocturne is the home world of salamanders located in the Segmentum Ultima of the Imperium of Man and is usually classified by the Imperium Administratum as both a feudal world and a death world, obviously. When not at war, the salamanders prefer to live among the people of Nocturne and Prometheus, its massive close-orbiting moon, and usually serve as the leaders of the Nocturian settlements. Once every 15 Terran years, the world and moon approach so closely that Nocturne is almost torn to pieces by the resulting gravitic stresses. This is called the time of trial by the Nocturnian people. Vast tidal waves crash across the seas. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Seas? Uh, yes, seas of molten lava. Ah, but where do they get their water? Uh, um... And thousands of volcanoes explode, <laughs> ash and fumes, further blotting out the weak haze from the sun of Nocturne, where the powerful earthquakes constantly ravage the land. All life is sent reeling. Towns collapse and people die with heartbreaking regularity. Then a terrible winter sets in for the next three and a half years. The young freeze, and most, if not all, of the native reptilian livestock dies, unable to withstand the extreme cold as they had the heat. One of the largest volcanic mountains on Nocturne is named Mount Deathfire. This is where the most massive of the great fire-resistant reptiles called salamanders, who are common on Nocturne, live. And the largest of them are known as fire drakes. Even through this inhospitality, it is still fairly populated. 
During the last Imperial census, the total population of this death planet was a cool 15 million. Really? That many people live in that horrid place? Indeed. Now, this world may seem a strange place for humans to live and even thrive, but the Nocturnian people have been molded both physically and mentally into stronger and more resilient forms by this adversity. Time of trial also brings great rewards. Rich veins of gems and strategic metals are revealed, large enough to be mined by the Nocturnian clans to pay for new livestock and food on the Imperium's interplanetary markets. The Salamanders and other residents of Nocturne live in giant underground sanctuary cities, the largest of which is called Hesoid, and which tend to be home to a single one of the Nocturnian people's clans. Each of the Salamander companies is usually recruited entirely from one of these clan settlements so that the battle brothers of the company will share their clan as well as the chapter loyalty and will also feel strongly connected to their homeworld's common people. Salamanders either live on Prometheus in the Fortress Monastery or live among the people of Nocturne, where they usually serve as leaders of the clan settlements that dominate the Nocturnian population. It should be noted that the people of Nocturne have been slightly mutated by their constant exposure to the high levels of radioactivity present on their world due to the radioactive rare earth elements often uncovered by the extreme volcanism. They have developed deep ebony skins, regardless of their original ethnicities, and the irises of their eyes now glow red in the darkness because they developed over many generations the ability to see in the infrared levels of the electric magnetic spectrum to deal with the constant volcanic pollution that blocks out their world's sunlight. These same physical characteristics are also present in every salamander space marine. The Imperium Ecclesiarchy does not consider these mutations heretical as the salamanders and the Nocturnians themselves have always been among the most staunchly loyal to the emperor of the space marine chapter. The Promethean cult prevalent on the world is an accepted variant of the Imperial cult. Now, the Promethean cult has been passed down from generation to generation, and even dates back before Vulcan. Yet it must be noted that Vulcan was to put such beliefs into writing, a work of both clear vision and deep allegory. It drew both upon ancient Terran philosophical and martial thought, and the rich culture of the mythic history of Nocturne on which Vulcan had been raised. Drawing from Nocturne's volcanic planetary environment and its people's culture of craft and trial, fire served as a dual symbol of creation and destruction and was taken as the cult symbol and sign, as were the emblems of the anvil and the hammer. Implacable determination and the ability to endure any hardship is of equal importance within the teachings of the Promethean cult. And trials of endurance and strength, often marked by ritual scarring or branding, become commonplace in their training and ongoing spiritual discipline. These practices, alongside overtly mystical elements of the salamander's belief systems, became commented on as barbaric by their few detractors, some of whom saw the growing strength of the Promethean cult within the Legion as superstition and falsehood, contrary to the rationalism that defined the imperial truth. That the cult promoted the worship of no gods and set as its fundamental tenet the primacy of humanity in the cosmos was enough to deflect such criticisms, though, in most cases. The Prometheans believed deeply in the virtues of self-reliance and self-sacrifice for others, long-defining cultural values in the Nocturnian people who have struggled to survive the harsh environment of their volcanic and earthquake-wrecked homeworld. This cult is praised and taught to all, but approved by the governing council on the fortress monastery of the moon Prometheus, which they named uh, Prometheus. The salamanders should be honored for their many great qualities, but originality isn't one of them. <laughs> True, brother. The names of their cities and structures may not be well named, 
What I disagree. Their work in the foundries are quite original and truly wondrous. Fair enough, brother. But please, carry on about the Governing Council. Right. This council is known as the Pantheon Council. Ugh. And <laughs> this group has a total of 17 seats. Yet at the head of the table sits the chapter master, Tushan. He has held this honor for 50 years and rules through highly regarded wisdom and strength. 13 were for the other officers of the chapter, six to the captains of the remaining companies, one each to the apothecarian, liberus, and chaplaincy, and fleet, with a further three devoted to the armory and the masters of the forge, an unusual triumvirate, but necessary given the salamander's predilections for weapons crafting. Three of the seats were for honored guests sequestered by the chapter master and with the agreement with the rest of the council. Praetor, the fire drake's most senior sergeant, often assumes one of these seats. The librarian Pyrell occupies another. The last position has remained empty for many tearing years, since before Tushan had even assumed the mantle of regent of Prometheus. What about Vulcan Heston? I thought you said he was part of this council. Well, he is. Because he is so often gone, it's more like they pull up a stool for him to sit when he's there, because they know it's just going to be temporary. Yet all decisions are run by this council, including how new salamanders are picked. Indeed, Sekthar. Like many of the first founding chapters, the salamanders recruit exclusively from the people of their homeworld. Nocturnian children aspiring to become space marines begin their training at the age of six or seven Terran years as the apprentice to a salamander starts. That, that's actually, isn't that pretty unusual in itself? Yeah. <laughs> anyway, moving on. They spend several years learning the art of smithing. <clears throat> no, seriously, can you think of any other any other chapter that does that? Where, where they actually have apprentices? Um... Not right offhand, but as time goes on, we'll probably find somebody. <laughs> Fair enough. So it is actually really unusual. Yeah. Okay. All right. Carry on. Anyways, they spend several standard years learning the art of smithing, and the most able of these apprentices are judged by the chapters of apothecaries and chaplains to see if they are worthy and quite honestly capable of surviving the gene seed organ implantation process to become space brains. Their training includes many of the same trials the Emperor and Vulcan competed in according to Nocturnian legend, such as the Anvil Hold. Their training finally culminates in the hunting and slaying of a massive salamander on Mount Deathfire. These names... Those aspirants who survive to complete all of these tasks are taken for the biological enhancement and implementation of the chapter's gene seed at the Salamander's Fortress Monastery on the moon of Prometheus. Because each battle brother in the Salamander's company is a clan brother as well, Salamanders have been known to fight like their savage namesakes to rescue their fallen and wounded, who are also their kin. Now, the Salamanders are one of three chapters that were given a unique gene seed created for the special purpose only known to the Emperor. The other two were the Space Wolves and the Alpha Legion. Just like the Space Wolves, they have inherent features that none of the other chapters have. Oh, so like the Space Wolves being unusually hairy and having fangs. Precisely. <laughs> Interesting. But, but tell me, Yusin, what made the Alpha Legion so unusual? I don't know was researching salamanders, not the Alpha Legion. Ah, sorry, my apologies. 
Carry on. Anyways, in the case of the salamanders, this factor showed clearly both in temperament and overtly in their physiology. Of particular note was the strength of constitution displayed by fully developed salamander astartes, which had measurable superiority to the already transhuman space marine norms in relation to extreme temperature tolerance, radiological resistance, and cellular repair. As a result of this latter factor particularly, only the Death Guard Legion are on record as having a capacity to process and resistant toxins that exceed the salamander's genotype. This variant gene seed, however, also had unusual outward effects, the first of which, noticeable even in the Terran members of the 18th Legion's intake, was a much-remarked ember-like bioluminescence to their eyes. These eyes have a visual sensitivity to infrared emissions, allowing the salamanders to focus on particular heat signatures. They also had a tendency for skin pigmentation to permanently darken in response to prolonged exposure to high levels of potentially harmful radiation as part of their biological defense mechanism. This often adopts an unnatural granite-like obsidian quality with sufficient exposure. It is worthy of note, in fact, that Nocturne, being a world where extremes of temperature and highly unusual radiological phenomena were present, served to further bring out this physiological reaction in Terran legionnaires stationed there and freshly recruited native inhabitants alike, transforming them. This, if nothing else, helped create a sense of shared nature and identity, both within the Legion and directly in kinship with Vulcan himself, who also shared in these unusual traits. Now, I know we didn't have time for a most interesting campaign last week, known as the War of Flames, and I know you're itching to tell it. But first, let's discuss this strange planet and its chapter. Well, I think, honestly, I think something that's kind of interesting is is that because these, uh, them and the Space Wolves and the Awful Legion, right? They all kind of have this right, weird right. part to their gene seeds. I find it interesting that both the Salamanders and the Space Wolves literally get all their people from death planets. I mean, Nocturne and Fenris, while they are drastically different, nobody really lives there other than these like like battle-hardened people who can pretty much survive anything. Right, I find that right. interesting. Uh, real quick, do you know any ways where Alpha Legion got its people from? It wouldn't surprise me if it was another death planet, but... Uh, not right offhand. <laughs> I was I was trying to look it up, and, and you know you know Alpha Legion. It's just kind of like, who knows where they came from kind of concept, <laughs> because everything is so tricky with them. But to me, I, I do also find it kind of interesting, and, um, and you were mentioning this uh, when, when we, were, we were talking before, why on earth did the Emperor spend so much time on this chapter? giving it a different type of gene seed when it seems like he's just kind of like throwing them to the wolves constantly and just uses them as an expendable unit. I mean, to me, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Does it to you? Do you have any ideas about that? Or I don't see uh, any sense out of it either. For that matter, it's in theory, they try to keep them apart from each other generally also, which, you know, which, which does actually beg the question. I, I was, I was kind of thinking about this too. Do you know any ways what the relations between Lehman Russ and Vulcan were? Uh, I do not know. It, Like I said, they kind of, from what I remember, they kind of kept them separate. Hmm. Well, I mean, they must have seen each other at some point or another. I mean, 
Well, oh, yeah. always got together at some point. To me, anyways, I think Vulcan shows a whole heck of a lot more patience, along with his people, than Fenris and the Space Wolves. So I think, anyways, it would have been almost like an older brother talking with his crazy younger brother, just kind of going, yeah, that, that sounds interesting, you know, kind of thing. Maybe giving him a little bit of wisdom along the way, you know, kind of thing, but just kind of almost like, this is the older brother, Vulcan, and this is his crazy brother, <laughs> younger brother, Russ. Yeah. I, okay, I do have one last question for you real quick. Before we get to that, I, I do think that we, sh we should mention here anyways, how the planet honestly has shaped these amazing Astartes. They live on this horrible world full of radioactive waste, and, and it's kind of molded these guys. I mean, how would you describe it best? Describe what? How it's a horrid place that most people wouldn't even. No, no, bother. no, 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 no. How, how, how it, how it, um, how it's really, truly molded the salamanders into being these very stoic, humble, you know, soldiers of doom. <laughs> well, when you have a planet as horrible as that, and one of the things that they mentioned is the fact that the companies are pulled from the same clans. It's a um, more of a. We're all in this together. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I think that they, I, I think you've, you've struck gold there. I think the concept of community. And I assume that death is somewhat deadened on that planet since every 15 years or so, they lose a huge amount <laughs> of the populace. <laughs> but maybe that's another reason why. Okay. So this is my next question for you real quick. Why do the salamanders have such great creativity with their weapons? I mean, they've built some of the greatest weapons ever. And they have lousy names for, like, everything on their planet. Mount Fire Death? Or, well, no, it's not Fire Death. It's Fire Doom. <laughs> death Fire. Death Fire. It's Death Fire. <laughs> All of which, anyways, are, are just as tacky. Maybe maybe that's the reason why they didn't come up with any good names. Is because the people, anyways, that could come up with good names, they, they don't last very long. <laughs> right. I don't know. What do you think? I 100% agree with that. That plus, I mean, if you look at the equipment that they named also, a lot of them aren't very, you know, that creative either. The so designs maybe, the names, not so much. <laughs> it's like, you know, Rabute Gilliman shows up anyways at their forge and he just like pulls up the sword. He's like, this is the most beautiful thing I've ever seen before. What do you call this great weapon? And the smithy just kind of looks at him and goes, we call it a sword. <laughs> you know? Like, but what's its name? Well, it looks kind of red. Let's just call it a, a ruby red, sword. Or a ruby <laughs> sword, yeah. It's a red sword. No, no, no. You got to go a little bit more than that. Okay, fine. It's a ruby sword. Well, I mean, they are known for, you know, mining gems and stuff. Right, right. Well, Yuxin, I, I do want to actually get into, real quick anyways, the War of Flames. But do, do you got anything else to say about this strange planet and, and the people that reside in it? No, not really. Uh, yeah, just seems like a really crappy world to live on. And yet so, they may do somehow. <laughs> so you're not planning on taking a vacation there anytime soon? <laughs> no. What if Vulcan invites us? No. We'll have to politely decline. Ah, I see, I see. Well, anyways, getting into the War of Flames. I have to warn you, Yuxin. There's very little chronicling on this next war in which the Salamanders take part of. 
but it has some important similarities to what happened to uh, the Space Wolves around the same time. The time of which I speak is the Age of Apostasy. Okay, the Age of Apostasy was the second period of interstellar civil war that consumed the Imperium of Man in the early 36th millennium. The terrible conflicts of the Age of Apostasy grew in part out of a long-running political struggle between the Administratum and the Adeptus Ministorium for dominance over the Imperium's governance. The period is usually divided into two separate major events by the Imperial historians, known as the Reign of Blood and the Plague of Unbelief. While what happened to the Space Wolves took place in the Second Era, the Plague of Unbelief, the Salamander's War takes place during the time of <clears throat> the Reign of Blood. To explain this civil war briefly, it was a few greedy men trying to take over the Imperium of Man through the Church of the Imperial Cult. It's the easiest way to describe it. Now, now the Salamanders, as we've already explained, have a problem with murdering humans. While they will kill people in defense of the Empire, it is under the gravest of circumstances. I mean, remember, they are the protectors of mankind. So when the safety of the Empire's civilians was ruled irrelevant to the new Imperial Cult, Salamanders refused to bend the knee. It drew the ire of tyrant George Van Deer's right-hand man, the Arch-Cardinal Parisino. Now, George Van Deer, the High Lord of Terra, commanded both the Administratum and the Ecclesiarchy and ruled the Imperium according to his own wishes instead of in accordance with the Emperor's will. He became drunk with power and used the Emperor's name as a tool to take complete control over the Empire. And like I said before, Arch-Cardinal Parisino was his strong right hand and did not like the fact that the Salamanders were balking at his orders. Thus, he declared the Promethean cult to be heretical, you know, the religion of the Salamanders. In the ensuing War of Flames, five companies of the Salamanders were tracked down and attacked on the world of New Folly by three orders of the Sister of Battle. Okay, hold on a sec. I just have to say, New Folly. Yes, another terrible name. It was probably named by somebody. Oh, actually, no, you know what? This one, no, no, no. We, we can't blame every bad name anyways on the Salamanders. This was somebody else. <laughs> I know, but really. It's named New Fall. Yeah. Yes. <clears throat> Sorry. Anyways, uh, they were tracked down anyways by three orders of the Sister of Battle alongside a massive army of faith. Ah, the nuns with guns are at it again, eh? <laughs> yep. But remember, at this time, like every other time, they thought they were fighting for the Holy Emperor. <sighs> Such blind zeal always leads to folly. <clears throat> yes, I, I believe that is a correct statement. But faith is a tricky thing. And sometimes faith requires trust in the teachings of one faith, does it not? True, faith does require an absence of statistics. But knowledge in one's faith allows one a sense of morality, not simply the blind leading the blind. True, but don't you mean in this situation, the tyrannical leading the blind? Yes, I guess I do. But remember, folks, that the powerful will try to use your faith to sway you to their beliefs. But I think we are getting far afield. Remember, brother, we are historians, not theologians. Right you are, Yuxin. Where was I? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. The world of new folly. At first, the salamanders fought only to defend themselves. But then, when the army of faith struck new folly's hive cities, they could no longer stand idly by. The sons of Vulcan went on the offensive. And a bloody war began. Now, can you imagine five whole companies of salamanders letting loose? The armies of faith burned, didn't they? Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, actually, no. Thankfully, news of Parisino's death 
at the hands of the Inquisition arrived and the ecclesiarchy forces dissipated, leaving the salamanders victorious. Well, what did you think of this strange part of history, brother? Interesting. But before I give my two cents, what does this have to do with the space wolves? No, oh, sorry. I almost forgot. The space wolves dealt with the imperial cult later on, and they even went so far as to try to take the fang. <laughs> Surely this didn't work. <laughs> of course not. And if you folks want to hear about it, go ahead and listen to my mini box on the fang, part two. <sighs> Another plug. Indeed, Yuxin. But on this box, we are talking about the salamanders. True, but the concepts are very similar. How? Well, in both cases, they are based around uh, greedy, power-hungry people that try to use cults to sway their control over everything. Uh, you mean the imperial cult? Uh, if if you remember correctly, actually, the teachings of Lucaros kind of made a different sort of religion that wasn't the imperial cult religion. And that's the religion that basically said everybody should fight for themselves. Oh, yeah. His was kind of like a really detracted version of the empirical truth. Which is why, also, if he had ever tried to recruit the Scissors of Battle, he probably would have been killed by the <laughs> Battle. Ironically, yes, yes. Uh, the nuns with guns would never have followed him. <laughs> no. But I, I will also say, anyways, the I will say one of the big differences, though, is, is that the Imperial cult never actually tried to take Nocturne. I think that would have been had just as amusing results as when Bacarus, anyways, tried to take the Fang. It's just, it's just not a good idea trying to take the home world of an Astartes chapter. It just, it Plus, just doesn't work. It, it just like it makes no sense. I yeah. mean, in the case of Bacarus, it was more of to do with pride and trying to get the people out of the way. Trying though to actually take over and inhabit either of those places would be stupid. <laughs> that's, that's actually a good point. I didn't even think about that. <laughs> just like, congratulations, you conquered Fenris. Now what are you going to do? I'm going to leave. Because <laughs> this yeah, place exactly. is terrible. <laughs> well, I, I see we, 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 we do have some extra time. Uh, perhaps we delve into an old classic. A couple more notable salamanders? I'm glad you asked. We'll go with the Iron Dragon. Oh, you're talking um, about uh, Cassian Vaughn. Yes, he's oh, also he's known as Cassian Drakos, the Fallen Master, the Twice Dead, and the Avatar of the Sacred Flame. He was the first Lord Commander of the 18th from the time it was founded on Terra during the Unification Wars until the discovery of Primarch Vulcan on the world of Nocturne during the Great Crusade. Ooh, he fought in the Unification Wars? Was he part of the Salt on the Tempest Galleries? Uh, yes. And he was in charge until Vulcan found salamanders fighting for their lives against millions of orcs. This is unfortunately where Cassian was mortally wounded in combat against them. But such was the esteem in which Vulcan held this warrior that he fashioned for him a unique dreadnought sarcophagus known as the Dracos Remnant or the Iron Dragon. If you recall, I covered this in our box about Vulcan. Uh, quite right, brother. And you did a very good job. But uh, please continue. Well, during the drop site massacre of Istvan V, not Istvan, Istvan V. Hey, hey, hey now. Just Cassian because I butcher low Gothic doesn't mean you have to. 
Cassian fought with unmatched fury, first spearheading the attack against the enemy. Then, as the second wave showed their true colors as supporters of the traitors, War Master Horus stood fast while those around him were slaughtered. Surviving where most of his legion had perished, Cassian Vaughn's tale becomes intermingled with the, that of the famed Shattered Legion's strike cruiser Evan Drake, alongside which he would return to the battlefields of the 31st millennium, most notoriously during the Third Siege of Mazoa. Ooh, what happened to the Third Siege of Mazoa? Well, I'll tell you. The Alpha Legion and Iron Warriors positioned their fleets in orbit above Mazoa, and Cassian Dracos led the Disciples of the Flame into Mazoa's central forge vein. There he met with the Mazoa's rulers. The Norn Regents, a triad of truly venerable and ancient Cybernac Magos sisters interlinked by a complex web of neural interface technology so that they formed a single intellect of towering power. Their meeting with the former master of the 18th Legion is still immortalized in the data archives of Mazoa, the fire-blackened and battered shape of the Iron Dragons standing before the emaciated forms of the Norn Regents. Each one of their frail bodies suspended, spider-like, in their complex web of technology that linked them to servitors, battle automata, and other thralls across the entire Forge world. <laughs> that sounds like propaganda to me. Was it? Yes. Well, it didn't go quite that way. Ah. When Cassian Dracos entered the Norn Regent's throne room, these emotionless war machines fell back in halting steps. To the regents of Mazoa, the ancient Terran warlord spoke of his visions and the trials he had endured on Isvan and under the sand of the Urgal Depression. He spoke of his search for Vulcan, of his conviction that the Primarch yet lived, and of the sacrifice the 18th Legion had endured, a tale of woe that had a lot in common with the schismatic tech creed of the Mazoan Magi. While the sky darkened with drop pods of the invaders, Cassian Vaughn did not join his brethren in the defense of the Mazoa, but was escorted by Mazoa's most skilled forge rites into the world's deepest and holiest sanctum, located in the forge veins' hidden depths. There, in an indisclosed location, the Iron Dragon was restored to its former glory and blessed with the most powerful benedictions of the Cult of the Eternal Flame. In the meantime, rearmed with the best weapons and tools of destruction Mazoa's armories could offer, his followers fought against the Iron Warriors and Alpha Legion. To guard their leader in his most vulnerable hours, 50 of his number remained close to Vaughn, acting as his personal honor guard, while the rest of Evan Drake's complement of warriors joined the defenders outside. Through sheer determination and great sacrifice, the defenders of Mazoa held the enemy at bay for nine desperate solar days, until the third siege of Mazoa finally reached its climax. Returned to his former glory by the diligent ministrations of Mazoa's most gifted forge rites, Cassian Vaughn reemerged from the deep vaults of the forge fate. However, Instead of leading his honor guard against the rampaging Alpha Legion, he took his remain warriors against the Iron Warriors at Tertial V. With grim determination, the Iron Warriors cowered in their makeshift fortresses of iron and broken rockcrete, 
determined to meet the loyalist charge guns blazing. But the assaults they had expected never came. Instead, Cassian Vaughn advanced alone, calling on the enemy commander to show himself. Standing atop his fortification, Norik Dragior eyed the approaching dreadnought, his own battle automata refusing to engage Vaughn or bar his passage. What words the two commanders exchanged upon the battlefield remains largely unknown, but the prophecies of the flame record that. Wheresoever mm. has found the craft of the forge, the avatar of our Lord Vulcan has power, even in the works of the enemy, even in the flesh of the enemy where it has felt the touch of the forge, so he turned foe to the cause of righteousness. The sacred text further notes Drager's response. Brother, once more an oath to us stands broken. The Alpha Legion has abandoned us once again. Now we shall show that we do not renege on our vows. The death of Stranlever and Mosea both call for vengeance, and we shall grant it to them. With these words, the Iron Warriors ceased all hostility against the Forge World's defenders and joined them in their march against their former allies. The vengeful Iron Warriors requesting the honor to lead the charge against the Alpha Legion. Surrounded, the Alpha Legion soon routed, but unfortunately, the enemy commander managed to escape. This would mark the end of the Third Siege of Mazoa and the beginning of Dracos's career as acting warlord of the Disciples of the Flame with Narek Dragur as his new right hand. Following the initial success, Cassian Vaughn would lead several bloody raids against the traitor-held star systems, further weakening Horus's grip in this region of space. Wow! This is a great story! Uh, but but tell me, Yuxin, what, what did happen to Cassian Vaughn? Uh, his final fate remains unknown, but I would assume he's somehow passed away since uh, the Salamander chapter has continued to put Fallen Battle Brothers in the sarcophagus. Huh. So, yeah. I. It's a mystery. <laughs> but, really. So, but since it is the Iron Dragon sarcophagus, only the most highly individualist, strong-willed, and warrior-like souls have the even remotest chance of surviving the Dreadnought's activation process. These fallen warriors' strength of will combined with the dark machine spirit of the Dreadnought in which they are entombed for all eternity make for a very potent warrior on the battlefield. The current occupant of the Drekos Revenant, known in the late 41st millennium as the Iron Dragon, is Sakhar Brayarth, called by his battle brothers Brayarth Ashmetal, a former captain of the 4th Company. Perhaps he alone knows what happens to Cassian. Now, Brayarth Ashmetal has a record all of his own. Shall I tell his story? Uh, as much as I'd like to hear it, no. We do not have the time. But before we move on to my notable salamander, Pelis Mersan, I think we should discuss the difference between Cassian and the oldest dreadnought known, Bjorn the Fell-Handed. Now, before I ask for your kind of concept between the two, are we really sure Cassian's dead? Uh, well, like I said before, it would make no sense to take him out of the Dreadnought sarcophagus. Because that would mean that he would die. Unless, unless somebody 
out there in this great big university ways had the technology to heal him. Right? Right. So so there is a possibility that he's still alive. Except for we know that the oldest space wolf living is Bjorn. So um, the oldest space marine. <laughs> what did I say? No, theoretically, you said space wolf. He is, yes. He is the oldest space wolf. We do know that for a fact. But according yeah. to Imperium historians, anyways, he is the oldest space marine. Yeah. But they, they do tend to get things wrong occasionally. Every once in a while, you know, there's these weird things that kind of happen in the universe where, you know, things happen to work out differently. But but that's beside the point. What do you think the big difference is between these two? And how are they similar? Uh, well, first off... Well, one of the things that is interesting that's similar about them is that they were both originally uh, chapter masters. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that just popped in my head. Uh, uh, although that is kind of different, though, is because B uh, uh, Bjorn was a chapter master after Vulcan. Or not after Vulcan, jeez. After Lehman so, Ross. Yeah, but... <laughs> As opposed to well, as opposed to Cassius, anyways, who was chapter master before Vulcan showed up, right? Or he was legion master. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, sorry. But if these, if these two ever actually came into contact, what do you, what do you think, anyways? That they're what do you think would have happened? It, it's hard to say. It's like I would think there would be somewhat of a camaraderie between the two. Uh huh. I do think one of the interesting things is that in comparison to Bjorn, who is kept in stasis and then every once in a while brought out, basically throughout the majority of after the massacre mm. of Istvan Five, right. uh, they didn't put Cassian in any sort of hibernation. He refused to. Right, which is actually kind of interesting. Because, okay, so real quick anyways, with Dreadnoughts, one of the reasons why they put them... First off, why do they put them asleep? Don't they just kind of like start to break down while they're awake? It depends on who you talk to. In my viewpoint, it's supposed to be more like because of the fact you're trying to make sure, well, for one thing is you'd have to keep maintaining them for much longer periods of time because it'd be constantly running. But um, right. another thing would be the fact that when you're in a dreadnought, you really can't do much of anything. <laughs> So most well, cases, you would think fight. they would go stir-crazy if they were awake the entire time. Well, unless they're continually anyways fighting, like Cassian did, right? Well, Cassian, he was like for a year trapped on Isvan 5, unable to move. So are you saying he actually just went insane? Or... <laughs> yeah. I think that partially is what happened because... One of the reasons I think is because he's like, I don't want to have to go through that sort of thing again. It's like, right. you're being put to sleep. I don't care. <laughs> so I, I think also anyways, the, so like I said, anyways, that Bjorn and Cassius X or, or Cassian met at some point anyways, I think it would be drastically different before or after Estevan 5. So before Estevan 5, if I call Ryan anyways, yeah, Bjorn wasn't in his dreadnought suit, correct? Yeah, it wasn't. He yeah, didn't no, no. End up in a dreadnought until after Lehman Russ had disappeared, which was way after the Horus Heresy. Yeah. So if he met him before the Horus Heresy, then you have Cassian in the dreadnought and Bjorn being just 
a space wolf. Right. But if it's after that, Bjorn becomes a, a, a dreadnought. I wonder any ways how the, I think they probably would have gotten along better <laughs> after Bjorn became a dreadnought. Because, you know what? So, so, so hear me out here real quick here. So, like you said, anyways, Cassian kind of lost his mind a little bit after Esteban 5, right? Esteban 5, yes. Okay. And Bjorn has always been kind of like this wild, crazy dude until he be, got stuck in a dreadnought. And then he kind of learned patience and 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 became a little well, bit probably cold. probably he was also tempered a bit before that having to lead the space war. Right. But but just more so as he was put in dreadnought. I, know, I, I first out of theory, but yeah. I, 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 I think their characters actually would be significantly more similar after they're both in dreadnoughts. Right. But uh, I mean Honestly, that to me, anyways, that's kind of interesting. And it would be interesting if we could find some sort of chronicling, anyways, that they actually did meet. I, I haven't found anything, but it would kind of seem like originally Leon Russ would be the wild person and Cassian was more calm, but now over time it's kind of switched. Uh, I, I believe you mean Bjorn. What? what? You said Lehman Russ. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I meant Bjorn. But anyways, oh. let, let's move on to who you're going to talk about. The story of Pellis Mursan. Okay. We, we, yeah, we can definitely do that. Um, Pellis Mursan is a legend amongst the Astartes of the Salamanders. He's one of the oldest members of the chapter still serving, which earned him the title of Winterblade. Captain Mursan has served as the commander of the second company for more than 150 standard years. And before that, served as chapter champion for 30 years, remaining undefeated, for his tenure. A brilliant swordsman, Pellis Mersan, is a former winner of the legendary Trial of Blades. Pardon me, brother, but what is the Trial of Blades? I can't seem to find any record of it through any of my readings. I'm, I'm, I'm actually kind of glad you mentioned that, Yuxin, because I can't find anything about it either. Uh, if I had to venture a guess, I would say it's similar to the Feast of Blades set up by Rogel Dorn. The Feast of Blades is a centennial competition of honor held between the Imperial Fist, Space Marine chapter, and its successor chapters. Each chapter is chosen to compete in a test of arms, sending a champion to the Feast, who is usually selected among its company champions. I figure the Trial of Blades runs similar to this, or perhaps it, it, it's bigger. Perhaps Rogaldorn got the idea from the Emperor in the first founding chapters. You know, kind of like... So he got this idea from the Emperor, and he and the Emperor had the original founding champions, anyways, come together once every hundred years, and they would do kind of the same thing that Rogel Dorn set up. That sounds cool. Kind of like who's got the best swordsman amongst the original 18 chapters. Yeah, exactly. And I think that sounds a lot better, so let's go with that. But if any of you are listening and you actually know what the trial by swords is, uh, let us know in the comments or go to our website and comment there. But I digress. Pellis is known for his discipline and pursuit of excellence to the duelist arts, as well as the creation of some of the finest power swords in the Salamander's history. He has lost nothing of his phenomenal skills at arms, despite his skin graying to the color of cold forge ashes and the light in his eyes dulling to a deep crimson. He has tempered the blade of his wisdom to a fine edge through his experiences with countless enemies and innumerable conflicts. Conflicts like what? Well, 
Captain Marsan is most famous for his commanding the Salamander's second chapter throughout their involvement during the Badab War against the infamous tyrant of Badab, Lufth Heron, of the renegade Astral Claws. Initially, the Salamanders were reluctant to get involved in the conflict, having fought alongside both the Astral Claws and the Firehawks as recently as the Lacanthos Drift Campaign of the 1810s M41. And the chapter was greatly troubled to intervene on either side, despite direct calls to do so. When proof was provided to them by the legate inquisitor in charge of prosecuting the war with the Astral Claws had broken faith fully with the ancient covenants of the Imperium and the embrace of the service of chaos, the salamanders were forced by duty to act. The chapter could only send one battle company, Pelus's second, as the rest of the chapter was already committed elsewhere. Although few in number, the salamanders' force was heavily engaged throughout the conflict until the bitter end, playing key roles in several important events that defined the course of the war. Mersan was also part of the Salamander strike force that went to aid the besieged Imperial Navy base at Thrastos from an attack by an orc war boss, Borzog. 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 That name sounds familiar. <laughs> yes, I thought you might recognize it. He's one of the survivors of the orc horde that was defeated by the Salamanders at the fires of Festos. Ah, yes. Now I remember. He swore you would get his revenge against the Salamanders. <laughs> yes. And after many years, he sprung his trap with an entire orc fleet, which engaged Pelus's unit. The outnumbered strike force was then forced to fight their way clear of the ambush, but dozens of their battle brothers were slain by the orcs. In turn, Mursan is among those salamanders who survived. He vowed to take revenge against Borzog and yearns to do so to this very day. Well, folks, that's all the time we have for today. Join us next week for our monthly questions and answers, where we answer any questions you guys have sent us. Please send your questions to our website at www.asharaka.com. That's www.asharaka.com. Indeed. We will also be looking next week at a few particular units of salamanders and their favorite weapons, the flamethrowers. Thank you for listening, and feel free to like, comment, subscribe, and follow. And as always, <clears throat> this is Zekthal and Yuxin signing off.